Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Global Conservation Corps is a nonprofit organization with a mission of bridging the gap between communities and wildlife. We believe that in order to have a world with wildlife and healthy ecosystems, we must facilitate a mutually beneficial relationship between wildlife and the people who live alongside it. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we're talking with Wai Ming Wong, the director of the Small Cats Program at Panthera, the only organization in the world that is devoted exclusively to the conservation of the world's 40 wild cat species and their ecosystems. Ming is a conservation biologist by training, and his work has taken him from Zimbabwe to Thailand to Sumatra. His work touches on a number of topics we have discussed in previous episodes of Voices of Nature, such as the impacts of deforestation on wildlife and ecosystems, conflict between humans and wildlife, and how technology increasingly is being used to protect wildlife. Ming, welcome to Voices of Nature. We're thrilled that you were able to make time for us today. Well, thanks for having me, Bob. It's, uh, it's really great to be a part of this podcast series and join the other great scientists that you've had on so far. So thank you very much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. And so maybe we can just start with you giving us a bit of your background and what inspired you to become an expert in really so many different facets of conservation? Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, thank you. I think calling me an expert in many interesting facets of conservation is, is very generous of you, so I appreciate that. Thank you. But I think like you know, most conservation biologists, I was fascinated by wildlife and wild places from a young age. Um, you know, Being born and raised in London, England, Places like the Serengeti Plains and the Amazon rainforest that, you know, I would see in, in the Attenborough documentaries seemed worlds away. But I was just always so captivated by the animals and habitats, particularly the large carnivores and jungles. And, you know, the idea of, of working with animals and traveling the world was very appealing to me. So from a young age, I wanted to become a zoologist, which kind of later evolved into conservation biologists, having learned more about the threats animals face. Um, you know, my undergrad degree was in biological sciences. My master's degree was in wild animal biology. And in between and after, I had a number of various volunteer positions in Zimbabwe, Thailand, and the ZSL, the Zoological Society of London. Um, and these experiences gave me a broad understanding of what conservation involves. But it wasn't until my PhD and the fieldwork carried out in Sumatra, Indonesia, where I was really kind of immersed into conservation. Um, I was researching sun bears, one of the lesser known bear species, um, as part of my PhD, while also simultaneously collecting tiger data um, for an ongoing long-term tiger monitoring project that started in 2004 and it continues presently in the Kerinci Splat National Park, located west of Matra. Um, and this national park is huge. At 14,000 kilometers squared, it's one of the largest national parks in Southeast Asia, and it lies within a 36,000 kilometers squared ecosystem. Um, and the national park itself has this very kind of strange elongated boundary that has this enclave in the middle that has quite a high human population density. So the edge effect of this national park is, is huge, resulting in a, a large surface area vulnerable to threats. And there are many, you know, there's industrial scale oil palm plantations to smallholder farmlands and coffee and cinnamon farms that encroach into the national park borders. And as a result, much of the lowland forest has been converted. And so there's 
a lot of human wildlife conflict that occurs along these borders as the human growth continues to apply the pressure. You know, tigers have eaten subsistence livestock such as goats and water buffalo, um, even dogs and attacks on humans. And other small feelings like the clouded leopard and Asian golden cat, for example, prey on chickens, ducks and goats, while sun bears um, and macaques and wild boar tend to raid crops. And there's poaching of wild animals in the park as well, whether it be for high-value body parts of tigers and sun bears and rhinos, um, which are now unfortunately extinct in the area, but also undulate species for consumption. So while I was doing my PhD, not only was I implementing a, a scientific study using camera traps and interviews to understand sun bear ecology, but I was also working alongside some of the best and most dedicated organizations, individuals, rangers, and law enforcement officers on these conservation issues. Um, and from them and from the, from the area, I learned a great deal. I'm very grateful for that experience. I'm very grateful that I'm able to kind of transition these, this, this knowledge base into my existing work. You painted so many wonderful images in that story. There's just one, one small item I want to touch on before we go too far into the interview, because I think we're going to come back to it a few times, is you, you referenced you, you rely a lot on camera trap technology in your work. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what a camera trap is and why it is so important to scientists such as yourself in your work? Sure. I mean, so um, a camera trap is a camera that is fitted with a motion sensor. Um, and generally, we would place these cameras on trees. And so whenever an animal walks past these cameras, it triggers the motion sensor, and then it takes a picture of the particular species. And so depending on how we set these cameras up, we can use these to identify individuals. So for example, tigers have an individual stripe pattern. Um, so we can place cameras on either side of a trail that will take pictures of both flanks of the tiger sides that will enable us to individually identify that, that particular individual. Um, or we could use it to understand where animals are within a landscape, what kind of habitat features do they use? And we can apply various sophisticated analyses to this camera trap data to understand the, the fundamental kind of ecological aspects of, of the species that, we are, uh, that we're studying. And these camera traps have really revolutionized uh, conservation. It's one of the main tools in conservation and they essentially act as our eyes in the forest. You know, they're active 24-7 for you know, a period of, period of months whenever they get, they get activated. And they have the opportunity to kind of capture images and videos of behaviors that we probably don't get to see if we were there anyway. Um, so they're hugely important to us. And not only just for wildlife monitoring, but also for law enforcement purposes. You know, they can be used to uh, monitor kind of human activity in certain areas. And then this data can be kind of handed over to law enforcement experts, law enforcement agencies for them to document and catalog and, and react upon. So, yeah, camera traps is a, is a hugely valuable tool for conservation. And it's a technology that's rapidly developing. So you've, you've mentioned uh, a few times uh, your study of tigers. You know, in previous episodes of the podcast, we have talked about the big cats, you know, that be it the tigers, be it jaguars, lions, cheetahs, what have you, or other big species, elephants, you'd mentioned the rhinos. Yet you're the, you're the director of the, the small cats program at Panthera. What, what is a small cat? And, and what, are the, what are the types of small cats that are, you know, most important to our ecosystems and most important to your, your work and studies? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I get I get asked that a lot. So I guess there are there are three main indicators people use to distinguish between big cats and small cats. So one of the main differences between big and small cats is in the noises that they make. So the general difference is big cats can roar and small cats purr. So in this case, if we're using this indicator, big cats would include lions, leopards, tigers, and jaguars. Everything else, including pumas, cheetahs, and even snow leopards who that can't roar, would be classified as small cats. The other indicator is um, the Felidae family is split into eight lineages. So we have the Panthera lineage, bay cat lineage, caracal, ocelot, lynx, puma, leopard cat, and wild cat lineages. So for some people, they classify big cats as the ones that belong into the Panthera lineage. So in this case, big cats are lions, leopards, tigers, jaguars, snow leopards, and also cloud leopards. And then the rest that belong to the other lineages are small cats. Um, and then there's the obvious, size. So anything smaller than a puma or cheetah would be considered a small cat. However, there are variations in subspecies, and size can be quite misleading. So in this classification, species such as clouded leopards and Eurasian lynx are considered small cats, but at 50 pounds at their maximum weight, they're very comparable to Arabian leopards, for example, that weigh between 44 pounds and 66 pounds. But for now, generally, the general distinction between big and small is, is size. And, um, and anything smaller than a puma or, or cheetah is, is classified as a small cat. And, um, you know, as you say, we're, we've, we've just created this small cat program and you've talked a lot about big cats. Um, now, Panthera is kind of focusing on the conservation of the 33 species. Uh, and in my opinion, all of them are as, just as important as they are in each environment. Um, but the, the issue is that there is so little known about small cats is that we're still working out what is their role in ecosystems, how are they important to, um, to the habitats, and how do they interact with one another, and as well as big cats. So we've, we talked, you know, in previous episodes, we talked a lot about the, the really important role that the big cats play as apex predators in protecting the health of ecosystems, right? And please correct me if I'm about to misstate anything, but, you know, as apex predator, the big cats, you know, are often taking down the prey with disease and, and therefore keeping that away from humans. And, you know, through COVID, we've learned that just tragic consequences of human interaction with disease carrying animals. But what role do these small cats play in helping protect and preserve the ecosystems? Yeah, I mean, I, th I would think small cats play a similar role to big cats, but just on that level. So you mentioned that big cats can regulate prey and prevent disease. Small cats can do the same, right? So small cats are carnivores, so they, they play a role in the ecosystem by regulating prey populations. Um, or you can look at it another way. Or you can look at it this way and say that the health of an ecosystem can be determined by the presence of top carnivores because their presence tells us that there is adequate prey for them there. So in this case, they act as ecosystem indicators. But there are still many unknowns about why they're important to the ecosystem health and ultimately human health, because small cats just haven't really been studied that way. And there are a number of examples that I could, I could hypothesize. Uh, for example, you know, let's take leopard cats in Southeast Asia. I would think that they play a critical role in regulating rodent population, which is very high in oil palm plantations. 
that could potentially spread disease to humans that live in these commercial landscapes. But this sort of thing hasn't been tested. So we're still trying to work out what is their role in many cases. And this is definitely an area where Panthera's small cap program wants to investigate further, particularly in these times living through a global pandemic. Monitoring wildlife health is becoming crucial. So we currently fund a project with a close NGO partner called the Danau Girang Field Center, which is based in Sabah, Malaysia and Borneo. And the project is located along the Kinabatangan Wildlife Sanctuary, an area that is surrounded by all palm plantations. And the project is called Health at the Edge. And the group of wildlife epidemiologists are looking at disease transmission between domestic dogs and cats and wildcats and other animals that um, are in the area. And the initial results are quite interesting. Um, they've shown that there is disease transmission between domestic animals and wildcats, particularly diseases like feline immunodeficiency virus and other diseases. And so now I think the group are looking at um, mitigation measures, um, possibly looking at vaccinating domestic animals to prevent any further spread. Um, another project of ours is replicating the work of my colleague, Mark Elbrock, who studies pumas in the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And his studies have shown um, the puma's role in the ecosystem, how they regulate prey, but also how puma's presence also benefits many other species, from bears to beetles, as well as humans. Um, and so we're doing something very similar with bobcats in a number of sites across the US. Um, and again, just really digging into that topic of why are small cats important to ecosystem health. So do small cats come into conflict with humans the way that the, we've at least you know, heard so much about of the, the big cat and human conflict where humans often treat these big cats as threats rather than allies in ecosystem health? They do, they do. Um, it's just the scale is is smaller. Um, and again, this is this is an interesting topic because human wildlife conflict is a very is a very challenging topic in conservation. And you mentioned there is a lot of conflicts from tigers depredating um, people's livestock um, that happens all over Southeast Asia. Uh, jaguars again is another example of jaguars killing cattle in people's ranches and and in turn causing very negative attitudes and tolerance towards these big cats. But these, these conflict events from the big cats are very costly. Um, they could potentially eat a number of cattle that reduces local livelihoods, or they could take a life, um, you know, which is extremely costly. Whereas with small cats, there are many documented cases of, of human wildlife conflicts, um, particularly in Southeast Asia, you know, cloud leopards, Asian golden cats, they come in and they will depredate goats and chickens and, and ducks. But this is a small loss to the local livelihoods. And so our ability to mitigate it is much easier because then all we have to do is say, hey, you know, we can implement some very simple animal husbandry techniques here to prevent these loss. And the tolerance will be results to be quite higher because they haven't had any significant financial losses versus the ones that happened for big cats. Yeah, that's really interesting. Given the what you've said, kind of the lack of research around this, the small cats, and I mean, this has just been a wonderful learning experience to me. Like, where where would someone like me go to learn more about small cats and the, you know, not only the types of the cats, but kind of how they live and move through nature? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, of course, you can refer to Panthera's website where we have a lot of information about the small cats, but also one of our 
aspects for the Panthera Small Cap program is that we partner with a number of really great local NGOs and local people and institutions, uh, many of which are kind of early career biologists that are a little bit more savvy with social media and, and websites and things like that. So a lot of our partners, you know, one, for example, is the Urban Fishing Cap project that's based in Sri Lanka, Colombo. You know, we can you can definitely go to these websites, search these projects, and and find out more about about small cats. You know, and another thing is, um, which is quite refreshing about about being involved in small cat conservation is that it has a very strong network of people. And one of my colleagues, um, Jim Sanderson, who's one of the foremost experts on small cats, is now forming um, working groups, small cat working groups, and each working group comes with a website or you know social media and so i definitely encourage you and all the listeners out there to kind of find these uh, find these channels and and learn more about small cats because the more and more we learn about them the more we find out that small cats are, are just as charismatic as the big cats um in fact in many cases more so um and they they really need um for us to kind of raise awareness of their conservation issues um uh, for us to kind of protect them in the wild so what's your favorite small cat what's the one with the most charisma <laughs> uh so that's a that's a really good question um you know so i would i would go with cloud and leopard uh, both species but i'm kind of torn between the two so previously cloud and leopard was considered a single species um and then in 2006 the cloud and leopard was separated into two distinct species you had the mainland cloud and leopard and the sunda cloud and leopard the mainland cloud leopard occurs in mainland south and southeast Asia from Nepal to Peninsula Malaysia. And the Sunda cloud leopard occurs on the islands of Sumatra and Borneo. So having worked in Sumatra and Borneo for most of my career, I'm more familiar with the Sunda species. But there's just something um, very alluring about the mainland species. Um, both biologically uh, look very similar. Uh, they occupy similar habitats, face similar threats. They're similar in size and morphology, but their, their pelage, their, their coat pattern is quite different. Um, so both species have the cloud-like pattern, and hence the name clouded leopard. But the mainland clouded leopard has these large cloud-like patterns with narrower margins, and the background color is more of a, a rich, tawny color, whereas the Sunda species has um, smaller, closer-together cloud shapes with thicker margins and has more of a grayish, yellowish background color. Um, but, you know, both species of cloud leopards uh, are really great. They have um, the longest canines in relation to skull size of any cat. They have an exceptionally large gait, a very large mouth opening that's almost 90 degrees uh, compared to 65 degrees for pumas. They are canopy acrobats. I mean, they can hang upside down on branches and run down trees headfirst. There are, of course, other arboreal acrobatic cats like the marble cat and, and margay, but the, the cloud leopard is much bigger. So to be able to do that is, is truly impressive. But yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is a hard question. I mean, again, because so little is known about the cats. And as I said before, the more and more we study them, the more charismatic traits we find out. Um, so, for example, black-footed cats, despite their size, they are the most deadly cat out there with 60% hunting um, success rate. You know, servals are these really cool, unique-looking cats that leap high into the air and have very efficient hunting techniques. And then you have fishing cats and flat-headed cats that 
that are slightly odd looking, um, but have these, they're very aquatic and hunt for fish and crabs and, and they're very threatened as well. And they're losing a lot of the habitat. And then of course, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the palace cat, um, the infamous grumpy cat that is everyone's, grumpy everyone's cat. favorite. So <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the grumpy cat. So the more and more we learn and the more and more that we get this information out into the public, um, you know, we, we really see a, a change of, of people's um, knowledge and, and information about small cats. Every time I give a presentation about small cats and I flash up an image of a palace cat or a cloud of leopard, it really grabs people's attention, which is, which is fantastic. These, I mean, these just wonderful images that you've evoked have made me think about, um, you know, how, how we as humans interact with nature. And, you know, I, just from hearing you talk, right? I, I now want to go to you know Sumatra or mainland Asia and, and see these cats and, and just you know witness witness their grandeur as you so you know eloquently portrayed them as. But it takes me back to the work of Global Conservation Corps, which is one of the things that we do a lot of is we take kids in the elementary schools around Kruger National Park, you know, one of the biggest, most well-known national parks in the world. Take them into the parks so they can actually see the animals because even though they live directly adjacent to the park chances are they will never see the animals the you know the rhinos the lions the cheetahs that live in that park and that's i mean to me that's just a, a tragedy and and something that's you know it just it's it's op- it just so opens up so many opportunities for these kids to experience nature in that way and I had a recent uh Absolutely. guest on the podcast ellen miles who's launched an effort in London to help restore the, the nature in, in the city, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, um, to provide people greater access to the green spaces and gardens in the, in the city. And I was intrigued by her belief that nature is a human right and that no matter where we live, all of us should have a right to experience nature. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that vision? And how do you see your work kind of tying into that vision if that's something that you agree with? Yeah, I mean, so yes, absolutely, I do. And uh, and so personally, you know, as a London boy, kind of born and raised, it's really great to hear that there's there's such an initiative that's happening in the city. And I remember in my early childhood, growing up, I would see kind of fallow deer, hedgehogs and badgers quite regularly. But, you know, it now nowadays, it's quite rare to see them, um, especially where I grew up. So I think uh, th- this sort of initiative is is particularly particularly important in the city setting, where they don't have much access to nature and wildlife. So that's, that's definitely a, a worthwhile project. Um, but yes, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that vision. No, you know, no matter who we are and where we live, all of us should be able to experience nature. Um, and this definitely fits in with our, our own vision. Uh, Panthera's vision is a, is a world where wildcats thrive in a healthy, natural and developed landscape that sustain people and biodiversity. And the word people is key here. We conserve and protect wild places and the wildlife, not just to benefit the wildlife and restore ecosystems, but we also do it for the local people that depend on such landscapes um, so that they can benefit from those landscapes. So not only do we need to experience nature, but we also depend on nature, all of us. So striking that balance between human and nature is, is key. Um, and I guess another aspect that relates to this, and you mentioned this about you know taking school kids to, to Kruger National Park, is is ecotourism. 
um, you know, we work in a number of places that attract tourists to come and see the habitat and the wild animals, particularly the Pantanal in Brazil. And um, we have another site called the Duramcot Forest Reserve in Sabah, Malaysian Borneo. And these are some of the places where you see jaguars, you can see ocelots, uh, you can see clouded leopards and marble cats. And so we work very closely in partnership with the local NGOs and the government to help conserve and protect these wild places so that we do have the opportunity to see these amazing creatures and tell the stories, raise awareness for their conservation. Um, and I think, you know, all of this is, is, is really very relevant in today's society. You know, for me, nature equals therapy. And this has been a really tough year for everyone. And the challenges still continue. And, you know, mental health issues are, are on the rise. And so it's really important that everyone has access to nature. It's just, it should be on your doorstep and you should be able to experience it whenever. You know, whether it's a long hike through the woods or, you know, a quick visit to the park, any access, I think, could make a significant difference. I mean, I agree with everything you've said, completely agree. But if, if we are bringing more people into nature, doesn't that trigger greater human wildlife conflict? I mean, not, not every organization takes the very responsible approach that Panthera does and, you know, the Pantanal and Sumatra and the others, obviously so many that do it so well in Africa. But I mean, I do worry at times that the more we open up nature for all the good reasons you noted, we also are opening up the possibilities for for conflict, which then in turn risks a step, taking us a step backward. Am I overthinking that or being overly alarmist? No, no, no. I think you're, you're in every right to be concerned and alarmed about that. Absolutely. And I think ecotourism, again, has to be done very ethically. Uh, you definitely need to put the animals' needs first. You know? so, so ecotourism companies, they have to be very respectful. They have to be very ethical, not just for the animals, but also for the habitats that they, that they work in. Um, I don't think increasing ecotourism is going to increase human-wildlife conflict. That kind of manifests itself when human-dominated landscapes encroach into protected areas or national parks, and it means it kind of creates a hard boundary for, for animals to kind of disperse. That's where human-wildlife conflicts um, ensue. Um, but I, I guess one of the main concerns with ecotourism is, and, and not just ecotourism, but any form of tourism, is that when you increase human activity in a place, it tends to get overrun and a little bit over polluted and things like that. And things tend to kind of run down and then the quality of those areas tends to decrease. So I think that's, that's certainly um, an aspect that, that every kind of ecotourism um, tour operators has to be aware of. But again, that's, that's something that, that we're working with. You know, we have ecotourism in a number of our sites. So I mentioned Pantanal and Durancourt Forest Reserve. But there's also ecotourism in, um, in Chile, for example, where, I had, where that was my last trip in, in March 2020, where it's one of the few places in the world that you can just see pumas walking very closely to you. Um, they occur on the ranches, um, on the borders of Torres del Paine uh, National Park in the Patagonia region in Chile. And what we're doing here is developing protocols of viewing and very strict guidelines and passing these guidelines to other tour operators, making sure that they're followed and everyone's kept safe, the animals, the habitat and the public with minimal damage to, to the ground. So let's fast forward any, any number of decades and we're at, we're at the end of your career, we're at your, your retirement party. Can we at that time 
not only raise a toast to you, but raise a toast to the fact that humans and wildlife are now living in balance with each other? I mean, will you, will you see that in your lifetime or in our lifetimes? So I think, I think in balance is, is a bit of a, a strong term for this because I think the balance, the scales are, are so tipped at the moment in terms of human development and human growth that it will be difficult to kind of balance the scales again. So in 20 years, I don't think we'll find ourselves existing in balance with each other, but I do see ourselves living in coexistence with each other. And I think that's because I think us as a society is becoming more and more environmentally aware. Um, and, you know, people on the ground are, are becoming more involved in these, these conservation topics. So, for example, in many areas, we're actually significantly kind of changing attitudes and tolerance and perceptions towards species. And, and one model that actually completely blows my mind is um, the Lion Guardians program in Kenya. Um, that work with, with the Maasai Mara. So the Maasai, you know, historically were arch enemies with lions and it would be their right of passage to, to become to adulthood was that you would have to kill a lion. But now that dynamic is changing. And kill it with a spear, right? And this up, up close and personal with the lion. Yeah, exactly. Up close and personal, very dangerous, very brutal. Exactly. And But now that's changing. Now they're realizing that, you know, the healthy ecosystem depends on the presence of lions. And uh, really great NGOs out there have, have created this, um, this Lion Guardians program. And I think Panther was a part of it in, in early stages where you know, they've, they're actually empowering the Maasai Mara, the Maasai warriors now to be the Lion Guardians, to take care of the lions that are found in the landscape. So instead of killing them, what they do now is, is that they take ownership and they, they collar the lion, they follow it around, if it's approaching, you know, assessment, an alert is sent out, and that reduces um, um, you know, the human wildlife conflicts. And so, it's these changes in attitudes uh, that are occurring the world over that gives me hope that you know, in fast forward to twenty years, that we will be living in coexistence with the animals and and with the ecosystems. I want to I want to end on your your theme of hope, but before we do that, I have a couple more questions for you. So. What's a way for those of us who are not scientists, we're not field researchers, to, to get involved in helping to protect not just the animals, but you know, wild, you know, wildlife and ecosystems and, and just nature more broadly? How can someone like me play a role in doing that? I mean, there's many roles. I mean, there, there, are, there are a number of NGOs out there who, who's doing fantastic work. You know, there's Panthera that's focused on, on wildcats and there are organizations out there that are focused on many other species and, and habitats and ecosystems. And so, you know, pick one that, that resonates with you and, and support that and support that NGO. Um, you know, any, any, any support helps. It goes a long way. Um, and so I think that would be the, the, the number one best way to kind of get involved with these sorts of things is, is to support the NGOs and the work they do. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really interesting now that there's a, a developing aspect within conservation, which is citizen science, um, you know, using the general public to help us make our work more efficient. And so now there are a lot of these crowdsourcing platforms online. Uh, one of them, one of the original ones was called uh, Snapshot Serengeti, where uh, there are projects kind of implemented in the Serengeti uh, and they had camera traps 
um, across their study area. And the images of these camera traps were then uploaded to this crowdsourcing platform called Snapshot Serengeti, and it would rely on the general public to tag these photos. Uh, Panthera made a similar um, software called Camera Catalog, where we would upload a lot of our data sets, um, and these were protected. You know, we didn't give away much in terms of locations and things like that. They would just see a picture, and it would contain an animal or not. Um, and the general public would go along and, and tag all these pictures. And what we found is that using these methods, we could tag entire data sets within a matter of weeks, you know, depending on the number of volunteers. And I think when Camera Catalog first launched, we had about 10,000 volunteers. So imagine that you have 10,000 people um, online just tagging your photos, and it goes through an iteration process so to increase its accuracy. Um, so the same photo would need to be tagged about five times. And if it's tagged four out of five times a tiger, it would be classified as a tiger. And it had quite a high accuracy rate of around 96%, 97%. Um, And this really revolutionized um, kind of data management because before that would take many, many months to do uh, with with many mistakes. And so now um, we can can rely on the general public to help us tag these photos, um, increase the efficiency of, of data management, which then allows us to spend more time on the ground. And it's also, it's also really great. A lot of people, I mean, I live in New York. It's in a big city with, with not much wildlife. And so when I tell people what I do, they think it's really cool, but also they're like, well, I don't quite understand it. And it's really good for me to say, hey, go visit this website, Camera Catalog, and you can start identifying all these camera trap images, which is one of the main things that I do as a scientist when I implement a study. Um, so now there are many more things that are coming online that can... Um, certainly help the general public get more involved with conservation. Yeah, and and for those who are listening, who are interested, who want to either look at the the catalog that Panthera has created, or hopefully you know spend some time um, helping sort the images, the the link to the that site is available on the interview on this the the page for this interview, and it's also available on uh, Ming's colleagues page. Uh, with the interview that we did for Allison Devlin. So it, it would be great if uh, anyone who's listening to this is interested to take a look and, and help the Panthera team. And I think Allison said it so well. I mean, you can do that from the, the comfort of home and yet your, your reach is actually thousands of miles. And so that's a, a really wonderful way for us to all pitch in. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, really cool, it's a really cool software. I remember when it first came out, I would use my lunch breaks to start tagging photographs and then I realized, oh, I'm using my off time to do work. So, <laughs> But 10, 15 minutes, from my understanding, is you, you actually can get a lot done in 10 or 15 minutes if you are so inclined to spend your lunch hour doing that, right? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> so you've, uh, I mean, you've taken us into so many places and you've just, you've done such an eloquent job explaining these, all the places you've been and the animals you've seen. Just take us to that one, the one place that you've, that you visited that just has the most lasting memories, that, that one magical place that you visited. Take us, take us there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're asking some very tricky questions here because it's, it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint favorite cats and, and uh, favorite places. They're all, they're all really fantastic. Um, but so, well, you know what? It's, it's been almost exactly a year since I last traveled. So this is quite a nostalgic question. Um, 
Panthera small cat program focuses on the 33 small cat species, which has a global distribution, apart from Australia, the Pacific Islands, and Antarctica. So one of the things that I'm most grateful for you know, studying small cats is that it has allowed me to travel over um, beyond Southeast Asia that I had become accustomed to. Um, so I, I have a number, a number of favorite places. Um, so my last trip was in March 2020 to uh, the Patagonia region of Chile. Um, in collaboration with Panthera's Puma team, we were setting up camera traps to survey Pumas and Joffrey's cats in the Torres del Paine National Park and surrounding ranches. Um, this was my first time in South America. So, uh, and also, it was also my first time that far south latitudinally as well to an area that is known as the end of the world. And I was just blown away how remote and sparsely populated the region was. Um, it was just a vast landscape. Now, at first glimpse, you, you look around and you, you don't really see anything. It looks quite barren, you know, perhaps like a landscape you might see in Antarctica under all the ice. But then you start to notice the wildlife. And when you do, it's there in abundance. You know, you see rayas, armadillos, um, loads of guanacos, uh, which are like a, a llama, um, camelid species. Um, Flamingos and pumas. You know, you actually get to see pumas walking right past you. I had a number of really close encounters with a with a family of of six pumas. Um, and so Patagonia is is just a place of pristine wilderness, and that was really a unique experience for me. Um, but then we have you know Sumatra, Indonesia holds a very special place, having lived there for a few years and continue to work there. You know, for Sumatra, it's it's really a privilege to be able to work in these massive forested landscapes. I mean, these are some of the largest ecosystems in the world with a canopy reaching over 70 meters in height. The jungles of Sumatra are amongst the tallest and most diverse in the world, but they're rapidly being converted into industrial agricultural landscapes, such as oil palm plantations and logged for their hardwoods. And so I'm very much dedicated to the conservation and protection of these forest landscapes and the wildlife that live in there. Um, you know, that I've been working in this in this, that region now for for over a decade. You know, it's a place that's very comfortable to me. Um, I can speak the language, and Indonesians are some of the nicest people I've I've ever met. I've never met a more welcoming bunch of people. But you know, if if I had to choose a place, it would be Bhutan. Just, I mean, wow. To describe Bhutan in three words would be majestic, spiritual, and wild. I mean, Bhutan is, has a strong nature conservation policy. Um, this policy is firmly grounded in the principles of the country's development philosophy, right? So it emphasizes the importance of achieving gross national happiness over gross domestic products and the firmly established ethos of conservation in Buddhism. So... It's believed that preserving nature is connected to the sanctity of life. Um, and this is so apparent when you see it with your own eyes. Bhutan is blanketed in forest. Over 60% of the country is covered by forest, and more than 51% of the country is protected. And in between these protected areas, you have a network of functioning wildlife corridors that facilitates the movement of large mammals between landscapes. You know, Bhutan is the only carbon negative country in the world and is the only country in the world that is in line with E.O. Wilson's vision of the Half Earth Project. You know, half the world set aside for animals, half the world set aside for humans. So for me, Bhutan really represents a conservation model in terms of environmental attitudes and the conservation goals that they have set. You know, Bhutan 
it's, it's just a beautiful place with great culture. The food's amazing. The people are extremely friendly and the landscapes are breathtaking. Um, so last January 2020, um, in partnership with WWF Bhutan in Canada, the University of Southampton in UK, the ZSL, the Zoological Society of London, and Bhutan's Department of Forests and Park Services, we started a cloud leopard project there to determine kind of based on ecological parameters, you know, population numbers, habitat use and distribution in the um, Jigme Singe Wanchuk National Park, which is located kind of central and south of Bhutan. Um, and the principal, principal investigator, he's well, one of my PhD students, his name is Lungtun. Um, he's currently in the field retrieving the cameras. And, and I must say, by the way, the, the habitat there is extremely rugged. I mean, you're on the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, so he's done really well getting a huge camera grid out there. It was, three, it was like 100 cells, and, and then we have about 300 camera traps deployed across, across the study area. Um, so he's retrieving those cameras now, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the results. He tells me that he's detected a wild cat in every grid cell, which is really promising um, and exciting. Um, oh, and then, and then the other, that reminds me of another reason why Bhutan is, is one of my favorites is because the country has a very, very high feeling diversity of around 10 species, which I think is, is one of the highest in the world. So hearing you take me to all those places just gave me just so much, so much hope. You'd used that word before. Um, and I, I always like to end these conversations on that, that last question about hope. And um, what gives you hope that we'll be able to find a way to a better future when it comes to the sanctity of, of habitats and the wildlife that lives in them, finding a path forward to, you know, achieve some kind of, you know, forget the word you use wasn't balanced, but, but, you know, come to, come to some kind of balance between human and, and wildlife and, and hopefully end the, you know, the ongoing conflict between humans and wildlife. Like what gets you out of bed in the morning to, to do your job and to just keep plugging ahead when you so often come face to face with the, you know, the, the challenges of protecting wildlife, be it poaching, be it environmental degradation, be it ecosystem loss, what, you know, however you want to characterize it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. You know, so, well, personally for me, the reason why I got out of bed in the morning to do what I do is for my kids, honestly, and, and for the future generation. Um, you know, you spoke about bringing school kids to the Kruger National Park and, uh, you know, and with, and not being able to see kind of lions and, and, and cheetahs and leopards and, and elephants and all those and all those species in the wild would be a huge disservice to our future generation. And so, for me personally, that that is the main reason. You know, both my children are are very aware of wildlife. They you know they love seeing it. And the, the, the the animals that we see here in upstate New York. Um, so you know, them growing up in a world where there aren't these species, it, it really upsets me. And that, that's not something that I, that I want to see. So that's my main driver of, of doing what I do. But the reason why I'm hopeful for this, um, and the reason why I think that you know, in 20 years, 30 years, um, and, and long after that, is that we can have coexistence with, with wildlife and ecosystems and, and human needs is because of the people who work in conservation. I mean, I... I you know, I think every one of us uh, are extremely dedicated. And you've had many on this podcast as well. These are, these are extremely dedicated people that do great work on the ground um, who honestly will not stop until the goals are reached. 
And so this is the main reason why I'm hopeful. And I've said it before in other answers as well, is that the world, I think the world in general, our society is getting more environmentally aware. Um, and it's not just me who I don't want to see my kids growing up without any, any animals in the wild. Everyone I speak to wants to see that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, think, I think as long as we, we keep working hard and keep going down the path that we're going, um, then you know, in 20 years' time, no, we'll, we'll, our ecosystems will be intact. They'll be functioning and they'll be benefiting human needs and, and everything else. Thank you. Every time I ask that question, I ask that question to everyone on the podcast. And without fail, uh, I just I find their answers to be so inspiring that just um, it, it does. It just fills me with hope. So thank you for, for sharing that. And Ming, thank you for your work and, and especially for being here today. It was just such a fascinating journey through not only through the world but through this you know new types of of cats that i know so little about so um thank you thank you for all your time and your insights today yeah thank you very much uh, i really appreciate it it's been a, been a great experience now. thank you for having me okay take care you too. <laughs>